Welcome to the Corporate Trijumi 101 podcast. Today, we continue our payment journey series, where in previous episodes, we talked about banknotes, checks, payment cards, and their implications for corporate treasury. This episode is dedicated to electronic payments, and more precisely, electronic payments in the United States. As the topic is vast and complex, we invited Craig Jeffery from Strategic Treasurer. Craig founded Strategic Treasurer in 2004 and is the managing partner of the firm. He also is the publisher of CTM File, a treasury news company. Strategic Treasurer does extensive advisory work and global research in the field of treasury. Last but not least, Craig manages the Strategic Treasurer and the Treasury Update podcast. Craig is a fellow podcaster, and you will find the links under the name The Treasury Update Podcast and Open Treasury wherever you listen to podcasts. The links are in the description. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is the payment landscape in the US, what a payment rail is, the different types of electronic payments in the United States, what is its journeys from the bank account of the payer up until the receiver's bank account, the type of research strategic treasurer does, and much more. Craig is honestly quite impressive. His knowledge around payments is something, and he's quite used to the podcast format with both his own podcast, and we therefore enjoyed the conversation a lot. We hope you will like it as well, and if that is the case, can you maybe consider leaving us a review? It helps the podcast a lot and makes Hussam and I very happy indeed. With all that being said, Please welcome Craig Jeffrey. So, Craig, um, Guillaume's taken us through in the past um, this whole payments journey where we've talked about um, checks, cash, debit cards, you know, these kind of all these different mechanisms of making payments. Um, and the pros and cons of each, but we haven't really gone too much into the specifics of what kind of payments you would find in the U.S. So could you take us through overall what kind of payments you find in the U.S. and, and maybe what's unique about it? Sure. Yeah. So when when I think about payments, I break them out to the, you know, what individuals use or the, the business to consumer or consumer to consumer, but also most of, most of our work in the consulting world is with to business payments. Most of those are, are business-oriented payments. So when we look at, you know, checks are still a big issue. I know, you know, parts of the world look and say, US is such a high tech country. Why do you still have checks? Well, those are items that start off as paper. They never make its way, they never make their way physically to the originating bank uh, in a paper form, but checks are a big one. Then we have different types of low value payments. Um, these tend to be like card payments, um, ACH, which is a an electronic fund transfer, it's a digital, starts off as a digital transfer. And then as we look at high value transfer, there's several types of wire types of payments. On the consumer side, we have different services um, like PayPal, Excel. Um, there's a, a huge number of payment methods. We can transfer money between family members or friends. If you go out to a meal and someone pays for it, you can just zip the money instantaneously. And so those are um, those are really common. So are the different wallets that are usually, usually and typically stored on your phones. 
But um, from a corporate standpoint, it's mostly check, card, low value, and high value payments. And there's a there's a range of offerings of those services within that uh, within that setup. Um, you know, you know, different types of card payments, purchasing card, virtual cards, um, ghost cards. Um, on the the faster payment side or the the more rapid payment side, we have different types of ACH. Um, we have a what's called real-time payments and FedNow, just faster payment schemes. And I, you know, just quicker payment schemes maybe is the better term that, that doesn't infringe on uh, certain uh, naming conventions. <laughs> so there are a lot of terms. Um, awesome. Thanks a lot, Craig. I, I would like to dig a little bit into some of the things you, you mentioned. First of all, to, to begin with, so we had a whole episode, a series of episodes actually on checks. Why do people keep using them in the US then if they are even dematerialized at certain points in like the payment scheme, because right, once you deposit your check at the bank, the bank will not send the check physically to the other bank to clear it and so on. It will more be done digitally. But so why do people keep on using them? I hear the jealousy in your voice. Just because <laughs> that's spots on. Well, well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I used to be really embarrassed. Now I'm just sort of embarrassed. But that it is it is moving. We, we're in an era of less and less checks every year, and they they do get dematerialized. Um, you know, back in 2001, there was this huge push um, because checks used to, you would write them and they would be deposited at the, you know, the pays bank and they would move physically, physically move yeah. paper all the way to their bank. And if you're old enough, like I am, you used to get the physical checks back in an envelope at the end of the month, like paper sent all over the country would find its go. way back to you. Which is which is amazing. That's where I, I comment about the jealousy. Like, who can handle paper like that in the <laughs> volumes? Well, somewhere right around the turn of the century, it changed in Check Twenty One and Image Presentment. It's like once it goes, you know, as soon as someone gets it in a lockbox, you know, at a bank, or they receive it, they snap a picture with their phone, and it converts it to an image, and the image is what travels all the way through. It converts it to digital information and settle. So it dematerializes it as quickly as possible. Why is it done that way? We got really efficient at moving paper around. And if you mm -hmm. saw how that stuff was processed, you'd say, you know, if you look at a lockbox, you'd say, wow, that's really fast. Those pap the paper is about to burst into flames how quickly they move it on machines. But that's, that's the limitation of how much you use paper. Paper is terrible. You know, some people like it because every system was set up to issue it. It's simple. One of the nice things was once we hit COVID, that was one of the nice benefits of COVID was that people were like, oh, nobody wants to print checks or stick them in the mail. Nobody can receive them. And so there was a big push towards electronic. Those things have helped. So we are an era of less checks. I don't know why we still use them. If my kids ever have to write a check, they're like, why do I have to write a check? Dad, can you write a check? And I go, I have to find my checkbook because I don't write checks, but it's, it's, it's diminishing, but it's just what we've done. Yeah. I guess and it's and it's disappearing. Fair, it's embedded in the in the culture and the usages. But okay, there is a shift towards more electronic um, way of making payments. Another term you mentioned was low value payments, and um, quickly after you mentioned high value payment. Can you just quickly explain us what are those and the difference between the two? Yeah, so you know it depends on you know what country in or even sometimes what region how you define those, and so you know I find the description of low value payments and high value payments more common globally than wire and EFT. 
Um, you know, in the U.S., we have a wire transfer system. These are high-value payments or real-time gross settlement systems. So high-value payments are, you know, they're always revocable. They usually settle through a central bank system. Um, they're and they're they're usually large sums, lower volume but high value. And so, depending on what what country you're in and what payment system you're used to, they're higher value. Low value payments, you know, in the U.S., people think of direct deposit. When you get paid, it's a lower value payment. If you have, you know, your accounts debited for utilities, those are low value payments. Those are primarily automated clearinghouse payments or ACH in the U.S. Mm. And uh, so, those are low value payments. So, part of our consulting practice, we do we help companies implement and connect. And do you need high value or low value? How, how timely does it have to be? What's the size? What's the requirements for revocability? Those are the two, probably the biggest deciding factors between high value and low value. Okay. So there is low value and it will be treated in a certain amount of time and high value will be like bigger amounts. Treated urgent for- payments. Again, SWIFT, they call them urgent payments. Oh, okay. And then non-urgent payments is like, depending on which, which scheme you come from, if you're like, hey, yeah. SWIFT, it's urgent, non-urgent. If you look at different banking systems, it's high value, low value. Mm. Uh, if you're in the U.S., it's you know wire and ACH typically. Awesome. So there's not like a dollar value drawing the line between those two. It's really just like the type of payment. Correct. There, there are there are limits on the lower value payment systems, depending mm-hmm. on which one it is. So there are some limitations. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to send. $500 million US, you can't use a single ACH to do it because the limit is one cent below $100 million. And it's really driven by how many fields exist in the record. So you can send $99,999,999.99 via an ACH. If you want to send more than that, you have to send two ACHs. Because mm-hmm. the, the field size only contains that much, whereas wires, you can do more. Some of the other lower value payments have limits like a million, um, half a million. Well, so, no one's a build, utilities build is that high. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it better not be, right? <laughs> Nowadays. Um, so, so bringing that to corporate treasury, then, Craig, what are the pros and cons of those and wh- which ones would? corporate treasures in a, in a corporate fashion more move towards and be relevant to them? Yeah, historically, it's been, it's been heavily ACH um, and WIRE. Um, so WIRE is, we need, we need irrevocability. Once we send it, we want to make sure it's, it's good funds on the other side. There's no way to pull it back through the payment system. You'd have to use the legal system if there was some type of error or some type of issue. You're doing a closing on you know, real estate or you're buying a business, everyone wants a irrevocable type transfer. More expensive, a little faster. If the lawyers are sitting in a room, you want that to go quickly. Um, but it's it's definitely more affordable, less costly for the transaction if you use something like an ACH. So those are the those are the two big ones for using traditional payment rails. Now there's there's a lot of card use. Uh, there's some newer payment rails as well that are having a, a significant influence, but the biggest ones are ACH, wire, and certain types of card, like purchasing card or virtual card, to handle some of the the AP activity. 
Could you define what ACH is for the non, non-experienced treasurer? What does that stand for? Well, it stands for automated clearinghouse and, um, yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit of background. So the, the U S the central bank is the fed. I think most people here, the fed is yep. the, you know, that's, you, you may not know every single banks, every single country's central bank, but the fed is, um, a behemoth in, in what it does. And so central banks oftentimes act as clearing for payments and, you know, the national automated clearinghouse association or the ACH network, the automated clearinghouse network handles these low value payments. Um, so it, it's, you know, automated clearinghouse, a clearinghouse so that, you know, it's a hub, you send payments in there as a bank and they send payments out. There's a, a body of rules, you know, call, you know, the, the NACHA rules and there's the ACH network that handles the, the movement of value transfer. Those settle to the different accounts on the other side. I'm super interested into digging into what ACH is, but you also mentioned wire, real-time payment. So those are instruments that we like to break down. But before before this, and maybe staying a little bit high level, there is a term that I keep on hearing, which is payment rails. Can you can you break it down and explain us what it is? It's a visual image, you know, a material image of a digital transaction, right? So uh, rails that you have trains run on. So how do you settle? a wire payment, well, maybe you're using the Fed wire system or you're using chips. How do you settle a low value payment like ACH? You use, you know, use the, the clearinghouse rail. How do you, how do you settle your cards? Well, you use the card network. It's a card network rail. So it's just a, maybe a more common or vernacular type term that lets you say, oh, here's the channel we're using to pass these on or the rail. It's a hipster thing. Use it and you'll be hip. <laughs> Okay, so to make the link with an episode we, uh, where we broke down card payments and card payment networks, this will be one rail. The one you just explained, the automated clearinghouse, will be another one. Yes. This is what allows the payment to be settled, so the transaction to be effectively happening with the transfer of the money arriving on the account of the beneficiary. That would be the, the payment trail. Yes. And... To go back to the U.S. then, what are the, the most popular payment trails in the U.S.? And since you, you mentioned both, for like the individuals, as an individual, what do I use most commonly? Or what is my bank using to process my transactions? And then from a corporate treasury standpoint, what are the payment trails that we would then prefer? Well, on the individual standpoint, um, you know, probably depends on your age cohort, but um, the card the car <laughs> network. Um, the ACH, uh, the ACH rail, those are, those are really popular ones. When I'm paying people personally, um, it's sell PayPal. What's the other payment trail, the, the rival of PayPal? Uh, one of them is Venmo. There's a, there's a huge number of different payment applications, but Venmo and Zelle and, you know, using PayPal. So individual transfers, um, you know, those are, those are ones people use Venmo and and Zelle are really, really popular. Zelle is, Zelle is associated with your banking information. So money comes in and out of your bank account. Mm. The bank sponsors the activity. And so it's, it's, it's easy to use and see. When you use other ones like, like Venmo, there's a separate you know, store of value. You store money yeah. with Venmo, for example. So uh, there's just a couple different methods. Or Ven- Venmo has long been very popular. Zal has uh, grown extraordinarily fast, and I, I believe it's overtaken 
Venmo on the consumer side, but that's not, that's certainly not an area of expertise of mine, but um, okay. you know, bank support's proved invaluable for their activities. Okay. So that's, that would be for the individuals along with the MasterCard, Visa, I would, I would suppose in the, in the US American Express as well. If we look more uh, on the corporate treasury side, what are the preferred payment rails um, usage? Uh, the biggest forms are um, ACH is the the most common. Besides besides checks, I mean checks are still a, a dominant force even on the corporate side. That they're, they're diminishing, and you know ACH wire transfers are still popular for large payments, but they're they're very low volume. Um, certain types of card transactions like virtual cards, um, purchasing cards, specialized cards that attack a, a whole section of the economy are, are big ones. They use some other payments like, you know, RTP and same day ACH are used. They're more specific, you know, some insurance companies focus on them or when people need to pay payroll very quickly, they'll use same day ACH or RTP, you know, in increasing measure, but those are still very small by uh, by volume and, and values uh, standard today. Mm. So this these payments that you mentioned earlier, the high value payments, they they will be urgent versus non-urgent. But you can have an urgent payment that is very low value as well, right? In, and and in terms of amount, like I want, I don't know, payroll for instance for a small company, I still want it to be delivered on the very same day to my employees. I will use an urgent payment or a high value one, even if the amount is low. Or am I mixing up stuff here? Uh, yeah, that would be that would be mixing a few things. So, so if we're using the term urgent, well, at least how I'm thinking of it. So, if we're using the term urgent payments and non-urgent payments, I'm going to be thinking of the SWIFT definitions. You know, when you send messages there, I'm going to think, okay, it's it's urgent or non-urgent because SWIFT has to take messages for everything that eventually their payment instructions, the actual settlement, whatever the rail is is going to be urgent or non-urgent, like in the US will be wire or ACH, for example. So if you need to pay someone in payroll today and you were really late, you might use a wire, but you might use the same day ACH or a real-time payment, for example. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, and to, to wrap up on this uh, on this corporate treasury aspects, uh, no no usage of uh, blockchain payments so far in, uh, in the US that you have seen, or <laughs> is, it, is it a technology that is? not yet there well you know there are there are a few supply chain vendors that hmm. use activity related to blockchain but there's not there's not uh, like this is not uh, an adopted method of using blockchain for uh, for settlement is there a specific limitation on blockchain that's i mean it was all the buzz for such a long time it was going to revolutionize payments and and it was going to uh, eliminate counterparty risk and whatnot. Um, what do you see as like the limiting factor of blockchain? Why it hasn't taken over by storm as it was meant to? Well, I, th I think the um, you know a lot of the a lot of the focus and attention has been on some of these newer payment rails, faster payment rails that are that tend to be lower lower value. And so, um, but still, if you look at same day ACH, you can send a million dollars. RTP their limits increased also to about a million dollars. So there's there's some, like RTP is a new payment rail. Same day ACH is using an old payment rail that you send it in the same format, you just have a different settlement date. 
And so instead of batch overnight for regular ACH, it was, it was a batch system, like all the payments go, you send it today, it settles tomorrow. They just process it in batch, a very efficient method of processing. And then the settlement occurs the next day. And so they've, they've retooled that network to say, now there's, you know, there was two, then three and four windows where you can send it. And there's just faster windows where it can make those funds available, you know, on the same day. Um, so basically like four overnights, if you will. And so there's uh, there's some rules for, for that that make it work. So that's a, there's been a lot of focus and growth in there. Banks and, and corporations are spending more time in there. On the blockchain side for, you know, having a, you know, this idea of there's a, uh, there's a distributed ledger where you can track items. That's really great for, you know, documentary collections or information like, I'm trading, I want to make sure everyone has the right information, a, a network view of things. That's where those things will, will grow and be handled more effectively. So taking steps in those directions, and corporations are looking at them. I would say it's still early days, um, really early days for that. So it's not like there's a, there's hatred of it or people are against it, but it's, you know, both parties have to be developed in those areas. I think there's a lot of value in you know, the concept of this distributed ledger as opposed to having, you know, you always have to go to banks to do this and it's based on paper processes. Now it's it's based digitally that we can manage it. So you know, it, it takes a while to change this, uh, change the tech that we use to, to replace um, older um, historical, slower methods with, with better, newer methods, right? The only, the only corporate treasury area um, that I can think of that is starting to use blockchain or at least where we see a very useful uh, usage is trade finance. As you mentioned, it's for very much like documentary purposes and there it makes a lot of sense, but we have yet to find a, a guest to talk us, uh, to talk to us about this. Um, one, one last term, we love to break down acronyms, uh, Craig, you mentioned RTP. Can oh yeah. What that is. Yeah, real-time payments, that's a um, faster faster payment scheme um, that's through the, uh, the clearinghouse. So I'll probably have to tell you what the clearinghouse or TCH is as well. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, well, I mean, maybe that's, that's a good way to just overall, Craig. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit because you say it so many times, like, it needs to be processed and it needs to be this and that. Could you like just break down overall what an electronic payment actually like is <laughs> and like what the various steps are? Because to an end user, it's just, you know, I send money, money gets received. Sometimes it takes, sometimes instance, some other times it's like three to five days. I never really know why. What, what actually is an electronic payment at its core? Electronic payment at its core, I, I would say it's a, it's a, value transfer uh, instruction that begins and ends electronically. So it, it never, there's no physical aspect to it. It's a digital instructions to handle this. And you know, that your question is, is, is easy to answer and hard to answer, right? At the, at the simplest level, um, you send an instruction and it goes through, depending on which type of payment you're talking about, its journey, its rail can pass through different places or clearinghouses or networks before 
it actually settles before the value is transferred in someone's account. So that's where you get hung up. Once you start to know everything that happens in the cloud, like you said, hey, I send money and they get it. That's great. That's like, I make a phone, like phone systems. If you ever looked at how people design phone systems and how they drew them in schematics, it's like, there's a call, you have a local PBX, private branch exchange, it goes into the local network. And then they draw this big cloud and then out pops the other side, the same type of connection to the other person you're talking to. And what is that cloud? That symbolizes all the switches, all the connections, all the protocols that happen. And it sticks out the side. It's kind of like, oh, that's magic. So in the payment side, and this is probably almost impossible for people to follow audibly, but like if you send a, if I send an ACH payment, who are the parties? I'm sending it to someone else in the US as a company. When I originate that, I have to send it to my bank and they call it the originating depository financial institution. And so they're a member of the ACH network. And so they, they put it through, let's say in this case, they're putting it through the, the Fed, you know, the central bank system, NACHA. So they're putting it through the ACH network. So they're putting it through the ACH network, the transfer moves over and then it settles in there, the bank's Fed accounts from the bank perspective. And then they post it, the receiving depository financial institution, in other words, who on Payne's bank, the, the bank that, let's say my, uh, my supplier uh, gets the payment into their account. So there's, there's a lot of steps in there, but the other side just knows I got the payment, but how it traverses to get to their account can look differently. I don't know. The other complicating factor here, it's most of the payment systems that the U.S. has, they're separate, they're separate networks that can handle those. So like for wire transfer, you think of, you know, most, most countries use the central bank for, you know, payment settlement, payment rails. The U.S. does that too through the Fed. So like the Fed wire system is run by the Fed, but there's another wire system that your bank can use. It's chips. It's the, it's part of the clearinghouse. It's a private network. The banks own it. So they don't have to go through the Fed. They can go through their own private network. And same thing on the ACH side, you can use, you know, the ACH network, essentially owned by the Fed, or you can use the clearinghouse. You know, it's a, a private network. So we, uh, I don't know if it stems from we're a certain size economy, if we're just so uh, independent, we always want some type of competition. And so we have, you know, two ways of settling ACH, for example, two ways of settling wires. And those are oftentimes decided by the bank unless they give the ability to specify the payment network. So that's why you might want to just draw a big cloud in there instead of all the all the permutations that could go. That's perfect. What are those two ways of settling it? The ACH and the wire? You said there is two options every time? Well, yeah, there is, there's two options. So you can use the ACH network mm -hmm. or you can use the clearinghouse. So both are ACH formats. They both, you know, follow the same type of rules, um, but it's one goes through the clearinghouse, which is private and owned by the banks. And the other is the, through the, the Fed system. And same thing with, um, you know, wire transfers. Well, same type of thing with, you can use the Fed wire system or you use chips. That's also uh, a private network. We used to do that. I don't know if it still exists. It must, it must still exist today. It still exists today with checks. You can settle by presenting your checks to the Fed. Usually it's done by a, an image or you can use, you know, the clearinghouse for that. Yeah, I could tell you a story about 
9-11 and what that meant for the, the Fed and all the checks that used to fly across the country on planes. And since no planes could fly, nobody could do the, the direct presentment. And so they dumped all of the checks at the Federal Reserve Bank who had to give them availability. But the Fed couldn't get them physically delivered to the other places. So they just sucked it up um, you know, to the tune of massive sums of money, right? It's like, oh, this network won't use, we'll use our failover network, dump it to the Fed. <laughs> but so wait, what happened? Has the money been settled in the end all on the Oh, the, yeah, they had to give, checks aren't instant, so the money doesn't transfer instantly. There's right. There was availability schedules, right? Because there's inefficiency, it would take you know, one to three days to move across the country and for the, the payments to be presented. So you have these availability schedules. The Fed offered availability schedules, and this is all historical, so much more historical. So if you dumped the checks there to the Fed, they gave you availability one day or two day, two day availability of funds based on where the check was drawn. But that assumed normal operating additions, and they just had to they had to honor that as the clearer of checks. So is that kind of like why there is this secondary system? Because I mean, why would the banks want the Fed involved if they can just do it themselves? Is it just like a failsafe and that's why it's still sticking around or? Secondary systems, are, they're owned by the banks because they can, they can oftentimes do things more efficient, more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, getting, the Fed has to do things for all of the banks. You know, in the U.S., I, I don't know if there's six or 7,000 banks in the U.S. I could have mm. queried that. We have less banks all the time. But they do things for every single bank. But many of the bigger banks can get together and say, we we clear so many ACH between ourselves. If you look at the trillion dollar banks, we clear so many ACHs between ourselves. The Fed charges this rate. If we pay into this group, we can do it for way less than that. And so they all do that. They'll clear all those items there. And so it's just mm -hmm. it's it's an efficiency play to set up the private, the private settlement methods, primarily. Very cool. One step back from that, Craig, why do I need a clearinghouse in the middle in the first place? Like, can't just one bank just send money to the other? What's this intermediary? What's the actual purpose of it? So certainly you could send money. So how would you, how would you send the money? I mean, usually there's, the, there's these accounts that they maintain at the central bank. And so when they send money to one another, what are they sending? They're not sending physical goods. If they send money, it's a, they're sending instructions that say, you know, what I owe you and what you owe me changes. And so if we have accounts with each other, we can do that and just change our, our individual balances between those on a bilateral basis. You know, every uh, bank is going to be, let's say, a participant, you know, with the Fed. And so they have accounts with the Federal Reserve. And so they can use those, those balances as opposed to having running balances with each and every other bank so that... You know, your balance at the Fed is a easier way to do that than to have uh, balances at every single bank that you would deal business with. I don't know if I got to your, to the core of your question or not. So the way I understand that then is, I mean, yeah, if you look at it as an individual transaction, you could perhaps do like one account to the other, but because so many are happening simultaneously, you just kind of like change the old amount between them. And if the, the Fed has all these accounts, they can just like settle everything inside the Fed accounts instead of actually transferring money from, you know, exactly uh, uh, JP Morgan to Chase. Yeah, no, I mean that's 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 someone's like a if 
each bank had an account at the other and they both held money at the other bank and then they were going to be sending money to each other. How would they do that? They could say, we agree on a, I'm going to move $1,000 out of my account at your bank to this person that someone on my side is paying someone at your bank. And so they take $1,000 out of my account in your bank and move it to Joe Smith or whatever. We move it to that account. And so it's that's how we pay a customer um, or a vendor at your your institution. And so that would mean that we have accounts with each other. That will be a massive three count for uh, banks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or split twice. I don't know which one is the most yeah. used in the US, but that's that's a bit deal. We wouldn't we wouldn't use that. It's kinda like it's it's kinda like to the extent of why don't we do direct phone calls? It's like we have a separate line running between, you know, the three of us. It's like if it's just two of us, you run a wire between our houses and it's like, great, we can talk. Now we got three. So I've got two wires, you've got two wires, everyone has mm -hmm. two wires. They add another person now. Mm -hmm. It's you know, instead of six, it's now, you know, you just keep expanding it. So this is a, it's just a, a way of netting and settling that activity uh, more efficiently using the, the central bank or using the accounts at uh, uh, the clearinghouse. I, I like that analogy. That explains it very, very well. Thanks. Greg, sorry, but you, you should think amazing knowledge at us. So uh, we just make the most of it. Um, where does Swift sit in all this? Where's the link? Is it separate? Is it an order payment trail? Or is it sitting in between above as an overlay? Can you help us understand it? Sure. Swift is a standard setting body for like formats. There are also, so they help set up methods of communicating and formats. They're the second of multiple items. I'll just talk about this for context here. Is they're also a messaging network. They support, you know, messages. So there's non-repudiation. Someone can't say, I didn't really send this. I did send this. So it's all the instructions that primarily banks use with each other, but also corporations can send to, you know, banks so they can initiate payments or receive information. So they're, they're a giant network or a hub. They don't, they don't actually settle the money, but they get, they deliver all the messages that are required to settle all the money. So it's kind of like, um, communication, like, even though if I send instructions to Swift to my bank to move money from here to there, the message tells my bank to move it. And the bank's like, okay, I'm moving this via Petwire. I'm moving this via chips. I'm using this via taps in the UK, whatever. It tells you, it gives instructions to the bank how to move it, or the bank decides how to move it for them. So the execution is on some actual payment rail. But the messaging network is very, very commonly swift for many, many companies. Um, and, uh, you know, in the U.S., people do use swift for payments in the U.S. as a messaging. Um, they tend to do it less frequently. They tend to go, you know, directly to the bank and say, use this Fedwire. They'll send a Fedwire format or they'll send the ACH format or some other instruction. Super clear. So swift is the messenger. And the clearinghouse will have the settlement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for example, like if there's sanctions going on and you, and someone gets cut out of Swift, that means they can't send messages and it's like, you can't communicate, right? You can't communicate. That's not, that doesn't stop the, the settlement, the, the actual settlement rails, but it, it stops how people communicate about things. So mm. it's pretty essential for moving money.
and banks communicate with each other through SWIFT very, very heavily on a global yeah. basis. Super clear. Okay. Back to those HCHs, I'm, I'm really curious to understand it better. So we have an understanding of what it is and how it works, but if we get a little bit into the, the nitty gritty details, like what is actually the processing time of a payment executed through ACH? Um, you mentioned earlier the cost. What's the cost of an ACH? Is it cheaper than other, like a wire, for instance, or RTS? Yes. Uh, and so on? It's, it's really cheap, yeah. So in, in normal, you know, very moderate volumes, you might, it may cost a dime or 25 cents, 10 to 25 cents. Really high volume activity, it gets driven way below a dime. Um, okay. It becomes very, very inexpensive to move that. It's a batch system. So the time frame is um, generally it's overnight. So you can send a, you know, send instructions now and you say the settlement date will be tomorrow, the settlement date will be next Monday or Tuesday, and the settlement date will trigger when the funds move. But the normal ACH, the regular ACH, ages since 1974 are, are always, you know, next, next banking day uh, or beyond. Now, same the ACH, which started in 2016, allows, you know, within given windows, this, this batch process, this batch process still works, but they incremented additional windows. So instead of just waiting for overnight, they have other windows that they can process and settle on uh, the same day. Those are you know, yeah. Banks obviously charge a little bit more for those because there's a separate speedy cycle and ended uh, different process. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned the limit earlier. What, what was it again? Is it one billion? Is the maximum amount you can use? No. What was it again? So on a single ACH, the yeah. the record, the field can handle up to um, what is it? Uh, it's it's just below a hundred million. So okay. it's, it has an upper record below. for six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know if there's a period in it or not. It might, might be 11 characters or 12 with a decimal point. So it's probably uh, 12 with a decimal point. So that's the that's the limit there. On the same day ACH, though, the limit is capped yeah. at 1 million. You usually do the speed and the you know, concerns on, on fraud. So just like most quicker payment schemes, they... They start low and they keep increasing. So I think that's the third level they're at. I think it started at 25. I think it started at 25,000 and moved up. Is there a difference between an ACH transfer and like a wire transfer? Yeah. So two things. There's there's a, a revocable part of an ACH transfer. Though if there's a, a fraud or an error, there's a certain amount of time that a company or a consumer can respond. So if there's an error... Maybe I was, um, they were, they were debiting my account for the gym membership and, uh, and then I canceled it, but they kept debiting it. So there's a period of time I can revoke those and say, these are unauthorized. So ACHs have a revocable, uh, time period. It's, it's extremely limited on the corporate side. Whereas wire transfers are irrevocable. You can't force it back through the payment system. Once a wire is gone, you can ask for it and you, you might have to go a legal legal route to, uh, to get it back. And so those are, those are two of the differences. The cost is different. Think of wires as wires are oftentimes 10 to $25. If you do really high volume, it, it dips quite a bit below that, but it's a more expensive process. And, and the transfers, once they're approved are, um, essentially immediate, mm. but what, they have to be approved by the bank. And so that, that will take a little bit of time usually. How much, how much time do you have to revoke? 
uh, a payment like this then? Like, what's the, what's the window? Five minutes? Ten minutes? An hour? For, for a wire? Yeah. None. For an ACH then? <laughs> but for an ACH, um, usually it's a... Uh, boy, I, I can't remember the exact rules, but like on, on a consumer, usually you have enough time for when you get your bank statement at the end of the month. You have a, you have a, a bit of it. You have quite a bit of time. You have, on the bank side, you want to be checking your accounts every day because... Mm -hmm. the the window is really short you do not have a week it's like you want to do it every single day because the based on the cutoff it's i think it's about two days is the max and um, so you want to check every day to make sure you get the window if there's a problem so is that driven by the mechanism of a wire so do they not have rules is it it's driven by the rules so how is a so does a wire transfer between two bank accounts also have a central like common entity that's tr uh, settling them, or is it like mm -hmm. a direct transfer? What's what's the process difference between a wire and an ACH transfer? The ACH is is batch, so you're sending in you're sending in a file. Let's say you're paying a thousand employees, so there's a a single file that goes in that has credits to a thousand employees, um, and it, it has an offset to your account. So your account will be reduced by the amount of payroll. And then all those individual amounts will eventually make their way to the end consumer. So that batch goes to your bank and they submit it through, let's say, in this case, NACHA. And then they will deliver that to and the ACH network to deliver all the settlement, that settlement information to the banks of those 1,000 people. The FedWire is an individual transfer. And so you send it, and let's say they decide they're going to send it through the chip system. You know, or FedWire, so that you, you send a single instruction, gets approved, it gets transmitted to the Fed system, and it settles between the two accounts that the banks of the sender and the receiver have. And then the receiving bank takes the funds that they received and posts it to the recipient's individual bank account that they handle it for them. So that's, um, that's really a quick process for the, the settlement there. Because it's done on like individual account by account basis and not like as a batch process. Yeah, it's all, it's, it's much more real time. This, the stuff's processing constantly. So it's moving as quickly as, as they can. Once it, once it hits the, the thresholds that it's approved and the bank submits it into the Fedwire system or into chips, it goes extremely quickly. Okay. And, and is there a similar, similar field limit on the wire system? I don't know that there's a, I haven't been so close to looking at formats on Fedwires for, for quite a few years, but I do remember some banks had limits like you, you couldn't do, you know, you couldn't, you could do up to a billion dollars per wire. And so you'd have to do, like if you had to do a $4 billion wire, you might have to use four or five transfers. I don't think that's a Fedwire limit, but I, that's something that could be looked up. I, I, I don't know, um, on that that's one. That's okay. No worries at all. Um, okay. So, and you would choose to do a wire over a, an ACH because of the nature of wanting an individual transfer, like, because if it's more expensive, um, but it's probably quicker, well, it just, it's just based on your need. It might, it might be based on contractual requirements. Like when we settle okay. this or our, our bond payments, our bond interest payments, the, the recipients, like you got to do those by wires. I don't want them called back if there's a, you know, a concern about 
bankruptcy or some dispute. Um, so they're usually driven by contracts, but it's it, contracts and then driven by the need for something to be irrevocable, something that can't be uh, returned. And, and they always go through the Fed network or do banks also have their own uh, private networks? Uh, so it wire can go, transfers. wires can go through the Fed wire system or through the clearinghouse chips system. So those are the two, that's the private one. Private is chips and the 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 federated the federal system, central bank system is Fedwire. Is chips like chip and pin chips or fish and chips chips? What, what kind of chips? <laughs> it, it's it's like it's adult chips and then it's a word that sounds the same. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> uh, it, it I think it's yeah, you're you're breaking me on the definitions. We we get used to these acronyms. Yeah. Forget <laughs> yeah, it. It's like it's <laughs> It's a, Scope of Treasury 101, Craig, 101. <laughs> <laughs> You're breaking me. I should, have, I should have put those down there. It's like... Uh, so Google says clearinghouse interbank payment system. That sounds good. I knew the clearinghouse part, so, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So, it's, so it's, maybe it's not like the fish and chips. <laughs> like fish and chips. Or she'd be a little bit hungry. So, Craig, if, if wires are so instant, you just need the bank, like, approval to go ahead with it. What's a RTP then? You said it was a real-time payment. Like, there's something faster than instant? How does that work? Well, there, it's a, it's a, the wire transfer system and, and the ACH network, those are quite old systems. They're, you know, over 40 years old. Um, so they're designed with technology that works a certain way. RTP is essentially instant in terms of delivery. And while the limit's a million dollars, it costs uh, about a nickel to use that system. And so it's really rapid settlement. You can include, you know, some more uh, information about the payment. So it's, it's easier to integrate to. It's more expandable. You know, as a new payment rail, it's new tech, right? So, you know, it's like we're talking about payment systems. Like it's like phones, like they're all phones. They all transfer money, but some are less expensive. Some are better. It's like we got a, a landline phone. We got an old bag phone. We have really old cell flip phones. So we have some of today's smartphones. There's a there's a significant variety of what's out there for payment systems. So RTP is a a new new system up since 2017. Yeah. So oh, it's as recent as that. Yeah. What's different in the mechanism behind it that enables it to be faster? Well, it's it's a it's a payment uh, system. I just call it like a payment network or payment platform, um, which, you know, operates, I'm trying to think of how I would say this. I'm not an expert on how it all operates, but you know, the, the newer tech, when we think about, uh, payments, uh, how payments are made, it's, you know, it's like there can be greater visibility. You can put more information in there. You know, mm -hmm. if you think about things that sit on Azure or Amazon web services, you have all kinds of additional capability, function, speed, scalable ability. That is very different from some of the linear approaches that all of the older payment systems took, or most of the uh, the, the transformation that takes place in the technology supports the payment process as well. Just like everybody's moving to S4 HANA from um, from an earlier version of SAP, it's like it's it's a different type of platform that's you know that's not uh, ancient. Craig, I have my my consultant senses uh, tickling. What's what are the the costs of RTP versus wire? I would imagine they are higher than an ACH, right? Because you 
you mentioned that it would be the cheapest option, likely. What are we talking about in terms of cost for? Why? Yeah, they're pretty standard. Them? They're like four and a half cents. There's okay. a couple other things. So it's it's pretty cheap. It's they're they're around the cost of a of an ACH. It depends on the volume you're doing. The higher volume you do ACH, you get it down. It can go quite a bit below that, but um, it's fairly standardized at four and a half cents. So it's it's pretty affordable. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, are there any other electronic payment types that we didn't mention that are used in the U.S.? In July of 2023, the FedNow system is supposed to be live, and that's been confirmed by them. There's a late Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> uh, the default the default will be 100K limit, but the, the physical limit is supposed to be half a million, 500,000, and that'll cost 45 cents uh, a transfer. So that's yeah. probably a whole nother... 101 episode. Indeed. Uh, that sounds expensive, though, compared to the three other payment we just, payment methods we just mentioned, 45 cents. Well, expense, yeah. So, what's the total cost of transfers and what you have to do to monitor and track? When you look at the total cost, these newer ones are really, really quite good. When you look at the older mm. systems and what you have to do to communicate, to pass information, to share, to connect to other systems, it's a uh, it's fairly transformative, but that you have to look comprehensively at that. But um, yeah. yeah, 45 cents is 10 times four and a half cents, of course. Um, right. But depending on what you're trying to do. But. Okay. You mentioned quite sometimes a batch payment, especially for the ACHs. What's, what are that? What are those exactly? So, so batch payments as opposed to individual payments. So batch and forward systems, that's like uh, the ACH network. It's like you do payroll. Or you do AP, it's like, hey, what are we paying today? Here's my payment run. And I'm making these 50 payments or 5,000 payments. I send a single file as a batch. And because it's batch, it can process you know, in the most efficient manner, not the quickest manner, but the most efficient manner. And that's why it drives the cost down for those. The other, the single entries, the, the more individual, like a wire transfer, I enter it onto the bank portal. As soon as it's approved, it settles on an individual basis. It settles to your account on an individual basis as well. So if you do a payroll settlement, there'll be a debit to your bank account. That debit will be for the entire amount of payroll in mass. It won't have the, the, the 1,000 employees have individual debits. It'll be a single debit for the, the $1 million. Yeah. Okay. Super clear. So Craig, thanks so much. I, I feel like you know, we love getting to the nitty gritty technical details about how things work. So definitely been super informative in that aspect. Can you bring each of those? So we focused mainly on the um, ACH, the wire transfers and the RTPs. Can you bring each of them back to corporate treasury? So as a corporation, if you're paying suppliers, uh, doing payroll, paying your bills, gaining payments from your customers, um, what are the um, considerations that a corporate treasurer needs to take when looking at these different payment mechanisms and which ones they want to be focusing on? What What's driving those decisions? Things like uh, the revocability is a concern, the cost, not just the cost from the bank standpoint, but the total cost of the process. And that involves how, how are we communicating with our trading partners? How are they communicating with us? Every payment is reconciled. Every AP is an AR. Every transfer has a recipient, and they're they're recording and reconciling those in different systems. So, you know what information, how how rich that information is that travels with the payment matters. 
So those are those are some of the considerations. The other probably more practical considerations are what types of payments types does our formats and types does our payable system manage, our treasury system, our AP system, our admin system. So those are those are some of the concerns. Like, oh, we can't we can't support 12 payment systems. We we've got three. We want to add a fourth one. So those are um those are those help drive a lot of those decisions. And and the richness of the information point is quite interesting. Um is that just from like a system requirement point of view? Because you just care about like the the APs and the ARs? Or is there any other like data that transfers that would be valuable to a corporate treasurer? Like in their ability to understand and optimize their the treasury systems, or is it really just to execute and make sure the the machines can talk to each other? That information. Yeah, I think I think it's both. It's one is so that it um, it executes and settles properly, so it goes to the right account. Uh, but then, if you're if you're talking about receivables, they want to assign and apply. They want to assign it to the right, you know, who's paying them, assign it to the right customer, and they need to apply it to the right invoices. And so there can be differences, short pays changes, errors, whatever. So making it so that the, the, the defects that occur to change the amount are fixed or communicated and so that it's clear what are we paying for. Because if you don't say what you're paying for and they get this payment, what happens is you're no longer electronic. Now you're hyper-manually. Like someone's calling up and say, what is this payment for? They're sending an email and there's delays of latency issues of delays of time and following up. So if you look at, if you really look at the end-to-end process, you want to send enough information so the other party can do whatever they need without having to contact you. As a receiving end, how do you monitor that? Because for the payments you send, you want as less trouble as possible, I guess. You don't want your suppliers to come back to you, hey, I didn't receive these, or it's not in the correct format whatsoever, having an error message. But when it comes to the payments you receive, so the collections, can you really, on top of, well, getting money from your client, tell them, hey, look, it needs to be this specific format with this specific information so my system can reconcile properly? Or how does it work here? Well, since the customer is always right, it's kind of hard to force right? to include all that information. So so they may say, we would like you to send the information included in the addendum records and an ACH, include a, an EDI BPR segment in the ACH so that our system can automatically apply it on a detail level. Or you have a paying format, you want all of the instructions of what they're paying for to follow the XML format that exists. You, you can ask that. And banks have a whole, banks and you know integrated receivables providers and, and others have a whole process of combining multiple payment types, multiple sources of information that may or may not travel with the payment. You know, So you may have a payment that includes all the information about it, or they may send a payment by itself and then maybe they email, you know, the information about the 15 invoices they're paying for with the short pays or discounts. So yeah. marrying that information together and then processing it as a, it's a good business to be in. Take us through what you do at the Strategic Treasure. Sure. So I'm the managing partner of Strategic Treasure. So I'm in charge of leading the group as we set both our strategy, the direction, the business that we're in. And we have four core businesses. One is advisory, so traditional consulting and all areas of treasury. 
So um, that's the advisory piece we have. And then assist piece, which we always think of as headache removal. We do things that companies don't want to do. So it's it's staffing for cash positioning or forecasting or card management. Uh, we also do things like compliance work, like foreign bank account reporting, um, helping people move, divest, or um, merge companies. So managing the account activities or all the, the headaches that go along with that and, and, and connecting them to all their banks and dealing with formats and like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here. And then third, we have an informed part of the business. So, you know, we have CTM file, which is a media outlet. We also have, we also have another podcast too in the same space for treasury, the treasury update podcast, which is a, a strategic treasure podcast. And then we have a podcast with CTM file, the news or media outlet, which is the open treasury podcast. So maybe we can have you guys on that too. And then, um, the last one is, is the research arm. So we do I think at least 12 annual research uh, surveys that, that we run as well as uh, research for payment companies, fintechs, banks, um, across the board. Those are, those are some of the, the big things we do. I guess that's, that answers probably most of your question, but happy to go into more detail. I, I like, I like the media part and the research part. So like what research have you guys done like what what does research mean is it like phd research or is it like meaning coming up with the next best treasury systems or is it more like research into regulation updates in the market whatnot yeah so so a lot of it's primary market research we also do a lot of analysis on the space so uh, people may be mm -hmm. looking at their um their roadmap what do, what do they need to do what do they need to learn about that and that's usually a combination of primary market research. So surveying people either through, you know, online surveys, through interviews, uh, through some other methods. So it's, it's primary, like we're get, gathering the regular data as opposed to secondary or looking at other research that's out there and summarizing that. Um, so we'll, we'll do that to help, you know, might be a private equity firm looking, where do we invest in the space? What's go, how is the space growing? How is it changing? What are the important parts of it? Or it could be product management. Um, what should we roll out? What are the pain points? What are the hurdles? Um, they can go on on that for a bit, but those are those are some of the core areas. What do you love about it, Craig? Yourself about research or everything? <laughs> about everything you do about the about the strategic treasure in general. What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, so my my alarm wakes me up sometimes, <laughs> but usually I'm getting up. But no, they. I know that's not what you're. Mr. Literal, um, on the research side, I'd love seeing what's going on because on the consulting side, I really enjoy talking to people, figuring out the issues and providing a, a solution that's calibrated to what their company needs, not just a boilerplate, but, oh, you have this type of complexity or this type of issue. Here's where it makes sense. And here's where it would change over time. So that calibrated solution never gets old, especially with all the new things that are happening in treasury. So that's that's really exciting on the advisory side. The research side is seeing what's happening. Because we talk to a lot of people, we you know you always develop, here's what I think is going on, lots of anecdotal information. And then you get a broader set of data. That usually helps you calibrate it more because you see certain things and you think everything's like the 12 things I've seen this last three months. And it's and you find hundreds and you're like, okay, there's some more nuances here that I have blinders on too. So this constant learning is really, really good at helping people think through that, how that's changing. That's extraordinarily fun intellectually. On the uh, 
the other sides like inform and other pieces are they're just good to have you know ongoing relationships with with companies and with tech firms uh, those are you know relationships matter and those are those are important so I, I love I love the new and I love analysis and putting things together so those are the those are the things that that matter get me up out of bed and can you Tell us a little bit more about this podcast. So you mentioned three total, but um, maybe so Open Treasury, well, we are on it right now, um, but so Strategic Treasurer and the, the Treasury Update. What are the topics covered there, uh, the format, the mission? We So Hussam and I started the, the Treasury podcast, the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast, because uh, we saw there were not many. So now when we found some, uh, we want to know as much as possible. Can, can you share, us, uh, share with us a little bit more info on those two? Yeah, so the the two the two podcasts, so the strategic treasure themed one is um, uh, the treasury update podcast. So that's the, that's the core one. That one is um, closing in on five years. That's that's our most popular one. We have themes of uh, series related to becoming a treasure. We have um, you know coffee break sessions, which are foundational topics. You know, similar in ways to the um, the one hundred and one, but probably more primary than that, like simpler, like uh, more broad. You, you go fairly in depth on the 101. So we do all kinds of interviews there. So that's the the broad educating, educating the market and learning. The podcasts are great for learning. You talk to people, it's like, okay, you learn more and more nuances and different ways to apply. The Open Treasury podcast, most of those discussions, which are, which are part of the CTM file, so ctmfile.com, is the is the website for for media but this is a this is primarily discussions about news events that impact treasury so we're talking about those every week it gets released on friday mornings what's the news why does it matter you know sometimes it's edgy sometimes it's let's just talk through you know um, economic things or different treasury news and we have um you know people that participate on there uh to just hear their views on What's going on? Why does it matter? What's the big theme for the week? So, and the, the strategic treasurer, is it, what's the difference with, with the two others then? There is a podcast, strategic treasurer, or did I no. mistake no. on that one? Okay. No, it's just, it's just the treasure update podcast is, so if we look at the, the link to the two primary brands, strategic treasures, treasure update podcast, CTM file is open treasury podcast. Mm. So there's not a, there's not a third one. Please don't make me do a third one. <laughs> Talking from experience, it must be quite some work, indeed. Already, no, I, I, I'm on the Open Treasury podcast. You know, every every couple of months, not not very regular. I'm on the Treasury Update podcast every week. Usually, I'm not I'm not the only one that speaks on that, but we put out quite a bit of content there. Awesome, good. Well, everything will be. Um, if you're listening to Corporate Treasury 101, everything will be in the show notes below. Anything else, Craig, you want to, uh, that we haven't talked about at all, that we haven't exhausted your brain on, and um, that you'd like to get a word in on? No, I'm, I, I'm good. I've, I've appreciated the, the discussion and, you know, having you ask questions, um, maybe not being based in the U.S. It's kind of interesting because you assume so many things where you're coming from. And when you look at different payment processes in different countries, you're like, okay, I've got to understand this from the base. And you always start in your, from your own orientation, you know, that, that difference of private and central bank payment processes. Yeah. That was, I remember that being like, you don't have to, 
why don't you have to like, where did that come from? Like, like it's, uh, and it's really pretty unique where you have this, this private enterprise. And so, you know, being such a huge economy and banks having power, and I guess probably, you know, American independence is, is probably where that, uh, that originated from. And it's, um, and it's something you can do in, in the size of economy. I don't, if you're a comp uh, in a country that's, uh, a trillion dollars, how could you support that? It might not be nearly as efficient. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Craig, maybe one last question. If people want to know more about you, um, the Strategic Treasurer or your podcast, where, where should they go? I would go to strategictreasure.com slash podcast um, or ctmfile.com or look up Craig Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y on LinkedIn and send an invite or just send a note asking uh, to connect. Those are, those are good ways to start. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Craig.